The Homeland Security Department is inching closer to making awards under its much-anticipated First Source 3 small business IT products contract. While the timeline is still a bit fluid, the goal is to finally get this nearly two-year effort completed in 2023. For why it has taken so long to get this mega contract across the finish line, Executive Editor Jason Miller asked DHS Chief Procurement Officer Paul Courtney. It is an active procurement. It's only so much I can share. We had an unbelievably positive response initially. We had over 600 companies express an interest in, in First Source 3, which is great. More competition, more competition, the better. So um, we did receive over 600 proposals for phase one, as I mentioned. So with that volume, conducting meaningful evaluation proposals, it did take a considerable amount of time. We did have some protests, just to let you know, they have been resolved. That did slow things down a little bit. And again, we um, due process is very important. So if a vendor feels like they need to, to raise their hand and, and file a protest, understand just to, it's just doing business and we make sure we resolve those um, resolve those the appropriate way so I really want to thank our vendor community for their input through first source three procurement process we've received valuable feedback and we're gathering lessons learned I would say one of the feedbacks we got from first source two to, to the new procurement is way too much administrative burden on the contract administration side of things we've taken that to heart and we've made these revisions with first source three to help reduce that administrative burden once the award takes back. So again, continue the feedback for Source 3, all other procurements as well, but for First Source 3, we have taken a lot of that feedback to, to heart and made changes. So continuing through the evaluation process, I mentioned SAM.gov. Continue to just look at SAM.gov for current timelines and updates. What we can share during selection will be limited, of course, but we'll continue to post frequent updates about the status of First Source 3. If it feels like there's a void in time, Industry is very quick to reach out. We have a DHS industry that lays on mailbox, reach out to the contracting officer, but we'll continue to keep folks as posted as, as much as we possibly can as throughout this process. Our whole team's ready to award this and move forward. It just, it just want to make sure we do it right and um, make sure we have a great pool of vendors at the end of the day supporting our first source three contract. Taking a step back, whether it's first source three or whatever contract you're working on, and, and I know there's a few others that we'll talk about, when you get so much interest in a big contract like this, and you get more than 600 potential proposals. Do you all have a thought or, or has there been a discussion to say, you know, really the competition happens at the task order level. It doesn't really happen at this top master contract level. So why not just say, what's the lowest ceiling we can let people in? Or what's the lowest floor we can let people in? You know, if, if, if 550 or 599 of the contractors are minimally qualified, let's just let them all on versus going through this process and worrying about protests. Because, Paul, you, you and I know you've, we've been around long enough that if you make an award to 300 or 400, you're going to get 30, 40, 50 protests of, of, agent, of companies who didn't get on because they feel like I'm going to get shut out of this market. Has there been discussions? And again, you don't have to talk specifically on First Source 3, but has, have you had discussions internally about how can we make it so we focus the competition really at the task order level where price – really was what matters the most, where experience really matters the most versus the master or the the, the big contract level? Across the, the federal government spectrum, there's different different thoughts on this. Uh, I've seen vehicles where it's onboarding process is pretty easy. That Basically, majority of the vendors who want to do whatever contract it is, they go through a, a, a pretty quick process. They're added, to, whether it's a BPA or IDIQ, they're added to it. And then, you know, great, robust competition continues. On the other end of the spectrum, it is 
hey, if we're requiring companies to spend bid and proposal costs, which, you know, it's not the easiest within a, a private company to get those bid and proposal costs. You know, the other side of the coin is, let's make sure we get the most highly competitive, highly qualified firms under the contract. Therefore, you know, the, when a BPA right IQ has been in place, the effort goes into it. So we have the kind of the best of the best to actually go through the procurements and less parties, you know, whether you get a protest of the, the onset of a BPA or an IEIQ, maybe you'll you'll get those protests once you resolve. You have a great group of companies that, you know, they can all successfully do the work under it, not saying they wouldn't otherwise. So what we've done within the department, we're really trying to get down to, you know, the, the best of the best who can meet whatever requirement it is. And we've mentioned we have innovative techniques that we do to coach our folks on. Some of this is not new, but we we um, we do coaching clinics, et cetera. You know, one is oral presentations. Another big one that we've done is we call them advisory down selects. It's not a, hey, you're not going to move forward. It's, hey, we advise you based on what we've seen so far, say in phase one, you don't look like you have the greatest chance of making an award at the end. So we're just letting you know now, and then you can proceed forward however you, however you see fit. That has worked really well for us. Um, I think, again, just letting being candid with industry, letting them know. So we're, we're kind of on the not let everybody in. We're more on the, on the side that's get the kind of the, the best of the best, depending on what we're trying to buy and really still have that competition in the beginning. But when we get down to it, we really do have the best companies. We, we got to look at price at the IEIQ BPA level. It's the way the rules are written today. If we didn't have to do that, maybe we wouldn't look at price initially, but we are required to do that. But once we get the task orders or the BPA and IDIQs awarded, we have a great group of, of companies. Again, to be fair to them, we don't want, you know, we don't think it's wise to have 300 companies going after every task order or um, BPA call. So that's just the way but, we've done things in the department. But I'm going to jump in because history has shown through a host of these multiple word IDIQ type contracts, the GWACs, that if you have 100 vendors, 500 vendors, you don't get... 300 bids on a task order. You still only get three to five bids. And, and you all, and, and I've, you know, I think a lot of folks feel for you you and your team because you're in a non-winnable situation. If you say, we'll let everybody on, right, then people, oh, the burden of managing 600 people is, is tough on, on DHS. If you only let on 100 or 200, you're going to get 100 protests or 50 protests. That, that's going to delay it longer. And I think GSA and others are, are finding okay, how do we kind of overcome that? And one idea is these on-ramps. Have you thought about that as another avenue? Yeah, and we're, we're and just to be clear, we're okay with, we don't like protests, but we're, we're, um, we know they're, they're part of the due process. We're looking at two things. One is on-ramping, because um, I think if we put together a five, six, seven-year contract, industry is going to change. There'll be new vendors in the marketplace, et cetera. So we want to have, that's something we are looking at and we are putting in place with our, our bigger vehicles. But with that, on the flip side, we're also going to have off-ramping. So if, if, as you mentioned, if we have a, say we have a vehicle that had 50 companies been awarded and only five or 10 are really going for every, every opportunity, a majority of them, and there's another 30, 40 companies that aren't, like we'll, we'll have those conversations with those companies, but does it make sense for them to stay on the vehicle? Maybe we start off-ramping. If a company hasn't done something in X period of time, do we look at off-ramping them off the contract as well, just to make sure we keep a manageable number of vendors under these vehicles that really are going hardcore, you know, going after these contracts and putting their best foot forward. Paul Courtney is the chief procurement officer at the Homeland Security Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show 
the nation, how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbored no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. 
That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.